Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Well, the COVID pandemic has shown us all just how much we rely on science and scientists, just how important the advance of science research can be to our health and our way of life, and also just how easily the public's understanding of science can become confused with real consequences. Vaccines based on messenger RNA technology are saving our lives, while telecommunications technology has kept many of us able to work and just stay sane. We owe these technologies to U.S. federal government-supported science. But at the same time, federal support for science has flattened. Major science topics have become politicized, and we've seen an explosion of misinformation, conspiracy theory, mistrust of scientific expertise, all of which is slowing down our recovery from the pandemic and making it harder to find solutions for our long-term challenges, like global warming. Our guest today is one of our national leaders, trying to help us navigate through all of these challenges. Dr. Sudeep Parikh is the Chief Executive Officer of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the Executive Publisher of the Science Family of Journals. From 2001 to 2009, he served as Science Advisor and Professional Staff to the United States Senate Appropriations Committee, where he was responsible for negotiating budgets for the National Institutes of Health, known as the NIH, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, and other scientific and health agencies. Dr. Parikh, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I'm looking forward to this. So let me start off with kind of an an overarching question. Why Does advancing science in America matter? And where are we in terms of how the U.S. government supports and advances science? It is, to me, it's one of the most pivotal questions. I I have three three points to answer this question. Uh, The first is that, you know, we are in a race. We're in a race uh, for uh, solving some really tough challenges that we all face as humanity. Uh, there are uh, challenges to our health. We need to heal the, heal the sick. We need to feed the world. Uh, we've got to make sure that we are uh, protecting the earth. And I view these three as existential challenges. Um, and we're in a race because things are happening. Uh, the, the climate is changing. The, um, uh, the population is growing. We've got to feed that large uh, and growing population in a way that is sustainable. Uh, and we want to make sure that uh, that we are able to capture some of the gains that come from 
from healthy people that we've gained over the last 100 years. You know, we doubled the lifetime of people in the last 100 years. Uh, think of the, uh, the amazing things that have come because of that. So we're in this, this existential race uh, with the challenges that are facing us. Uh, and there are opportunities that come with that too. There are opportunities that come with that too, because uh, you know, one of the things I want more than anything is to, is to find a cure for Alzheimer's. Uh, but finding that cure uh, is, a, is a global race, it's a competition as well. And so that brings me to my second point. So when the global uh, race with the, with the um, uh, significant challenges, we're also in a global race against our competitors, uh, both friend and foe. Uh, and it's a global race because there are economic benefits to come from uh, this investment in science and technology. And so when you think about that, you know, I mentioned I want to see a cure for Alzheimer's. Well, the second piece of that, that hope is that I hope that cure for Alzheimer's comes from here in the United States. Uh, because I want to see the economic and moral benefit and morale benefit that comes uh, from having that, uh, that advancement come here in the United States. If not, if it comes in another country, believe me, I'm still going to want that cure. I'm still going to want that cure, but uh, I think we will have lost something if it hasn't happened here in the United States. And that brings me to my third point, uh, which is that there is a certain amount of awe that comes from understanding the world around us. Uh, and uh, yes, understanding what causes Alzheimer's is incredibly important, but understanding our place in the universe uh, drives creativity. It drives uh, this, this, this amazing um, need for, for human understanding uh, to say, what, is, what are the stars made of? Uh, what's it going to mean to get there? What's it going to mean for, here, for us here on Earth to understand what elements might be available on asteroids? Uh, so those three pieces, the, this global, um, this race with the existential challenges that we face, the race with our competitors to ensure that the economic benefit comes to us as Americans, and the third is this, this awe that comes from it. Uh, when you ask about where are we in that race, look, I'd rather be us than anybody else. I'll tell you that, you know, we, uh, we've, we've made this investment for the last 75 years, uh, thanks to some incredibly far-sighted decision-making made after World War II, uh, we have been investing in research and development uh, over that past 75 years. And it's put us in a place where we should be, um, you know, where we are at the bleeding edge of science and technology around the world. But the challenge is that over that 75 years, our competitors have, have, uh, have seen that model and they get it. You know, it's, it's not, it's not you know, <laughs> despite what it actually funds, it's not rocket science, right? It's, it's putting basic dollars, putting dollars into basic research and development, and then seeing that through to commercial application. Uh, and so uh, we are now ninth when it comes to being, uh, in terms of what percent of our GDP we invest in research and development at the federal level, we're ninth in the world. Um, we are, uh, when you look at trajectories, when you look at trajectory of spending, how's spending expanding? Uh, there are nations that are growing their spending much faster than we are. Uh, and what that's led to is, you know, I, I run this thing called Science Magazine. Um, in the scientific community, it's known well because it's where the, the newest, the greatest science gets published. You know, we get just as many papers now coming from China as we do from the United States. Uh, and what that tells me is that there's good basic research going on around the world. And we want that collaboration, uh, but we also want to make sure that we are staying competitive. So uh, we, uh, I, if I had to put our place in the world, I'd say I'd rather be us than anybody else, but that doesn't mean we can, uh, we can rest on our laurels. Let you know, just... I'm a big believer in the connection that you were just beginning to outline there between the research that we do here 
in the US and the prosperity that our people derive from it. And as you say, we can derive prosperity from Chinese research and folks in India can derive prosperity from the work we do. But that direct connection point, it's something that we outlined on a show we did on the Great Ideas podcast several weeks ago. It's a topic I'm really passionate about. And you know, one thing I did was I, I created a list of federally supported scientific research and some of the things in the world around us that it has led to. So the US government, literally created the internet, fiber optics, superconducting materials, LED lights, water purification, wireless technologies, lasers, bioengineered medicine, solar power, MRIs, GPS, satellites, weather forecasting, every kind of health treatment we get based on our genes. So that's an amazing list, but nothing nails it like telling a good story about it. We did some of that on the Great Ideas show too. So I wanted to ask you, when you communicate about science, which is your job, both with elected officials and the public, what examples, what stories about that connection between the work that the U.S. government funds and supports and the incredible advances in the way we live our lives, what, what stories do you like to tell? What, what stands out to you that really nails that connection home? Yeah, Matt, uh, there, there are so many. Uh, and I love the list. I love that you ran through that list, right? Because you can keep going with that, right? There's just so many. Basically, every every technological advancement that you have in your home uh, can trace its way back to federally uh, federally funded uh, research. You know, I, I would start, and, and if you've already heard this story, stop me, but I'd have you got to start with the pandemic that we're in. Uh, these mRNA vaccines, uh, you know, it's a story. It's a story that I love because it's it's got multiple dimensions to it. So the, the technology is amazing, right? mRNA uh, uh, technology, the, the actual basic research done back in the 80s and 90s um, was, was fascinating. But then they hit a stumbling block, right? The stumbling block was, gosh, when you, when you put mRNA into, into living things, it, it elicits a immune response that's too powerful. And this amazing work by a, a, an immigrant scientist to the United States uh, that she couldn't get funding for it, right? I mean, it was really tough to get funding collaborated with a guy named Drew Weissman. So Catalina Carrico is the, is the female scientist. Drew Weissman uh, is a scientist at, at UPenn. They collaborate together. They do get grants during the doubling of the NIH because at that point we funded one in three grants. And so risky things could get funded. And they solved a seminal problem uh, in getting uh, the mRNA to not elicit too much of an immune response. Um, and they published this in a journal called Immunity, Immunity which is not a journal that I read as a, as a biochemist. Uh, it's a journal that, you know, unless you're an immunologist, you're probably not reading. It's a seminal piece of work. Now, did we know it was a seminal piece of work at the time? No way. We had no idea because there's a thousand other pieces of research like that going on. Um, but she had this incredible tenacity to keep going with it. And so then she had to find a delivery mechanism. And so that required people at MIT and other places that, that were thinking about the, these vesicles that you can deliver things into cells with. Uh, and so you combine those two things together and you get, uh, you start to get the platforms that, that create our mRNA vaccines. That is, you know, it, what I love about that story is that first of all, there are, uh, there's a human element to it. Uh, second is it's completely the product of the doubling of the NIH back from 1998, 2003. It wouldn't exist without it. Um, the second part that I love about this story uh, is that go past the basic research. Now let's go to development and, and so forth. Um, the Vaccine Research Center, which is where, um, uh, if you hear Tony Fauci talking about where this research is being done, 
It was built during that time period, the federal uh, doubling of the NIH, the Vaccine Research Center, where uh, Kazmikia Corbett and Barney Graham, who are the two scientists there who uh, designed the sequence for the mRNA vaccine uh, uh, for Moderna, they were they're working in a building that was created during that doubling. Then the next part of it is that when you sort of write down who are the people, who are the people that were involved in getting this vaccine to us, not the companies, not the investors, but who are the people that actually made it happen? And you write them down, there's like 10 people, there's like 10 people. And when you start to think about who those 10 people are, you see, you see white Americans, black Americans, you see immigrants, you see, um, you see uh, international collaborators, you see investors, you see government scientists, you see uh, uh, pharmaceutical scientists, and you realize, you realize that that is not an exception. That is not an exception. That is, that is actually a, um, uh, a hallmark of this kind of amazing science that comes to fruition uh, when you bring uh, great and diverse teams together. Uh, and so when I, you know, you, if, you, if you wanna tell these stories, every one of those stories that you named in terms of uh, from GPS to other things, they all have stories like that. They have somebody tenacious who is saying this can work and then they have this group of people that brought it to fruition that is almost always, almost always diverse because it requires thinking from many different specialties and many different disciplines and different backgrounds. Uh, different backgrounds because, you know, when you, even when you look at the space race that you were talking about, um, having those different backgrounds, you know, kids from, uh, kids who grew up in the heartland of America who dreamed of watching rockets go up into space, uh, kids who grew up in Germany, kids who grew up in, um, uh, you know, my own uncle came here because of the NASA space, program. he's a geologist, uh, you know, he's an, an Indian man working in France on geology and he gets recruited to come to Goddard Space Flight Center to work on uh, the Apollo missions. You know, that is the kind of, uh, that's the kind of story I love telling because it not only gives us the wow factor of GPS and mRNA vaccines, but it gives us the human element, which is this is all done by people. It's all done by people. And it's done by people that were attracted to a place, the crossroads of science. And that's what the U.S. is. So what's going on right now in science that you find really exciting? Are there breakthroughs? Are there new capabilities emerging that you think could be uh, the game changers of tomorrow? There are, there are. Um, gosh, let's start with health because everyone is, uh, is, uh, is interested in health. Uh, you know, like I said, we've gained an extra lifetime in the last hundred years, right? People died at 40 um, at, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and we're living into our 70s and 80s on average now. Uh, so we've gained an extra lifetime. Can we gain more of that? Well, there's research going on right now, and uh, this is well known. So again, if you've all talked about this on your show before, let me know. But the gene editing technology has the, ability, has the promise of curing diseases, not treating diseases. And you don't often hear scientists talking about cures. You might hear other people talk about cures, but not scientists. We're very careful about the language that we use. And every now and then, we slip in the word cure here. Um, and the reason why is because there are many diseases that are caused by single gene mutations, couple of gene mutations, and a technology that came about because of some very fundamental research in bacteria um, has led to this, um, to this new platform technology that lets you change genes in living cells, in people. Um, and so for a disease like sickle cell anemia, right now, there are 22 people running around the United States 
uh, who have uh, been given a, uh, a or enrolled in a clinical trial looking at whether or not gene editing technologies can cure their sickle cell anemia. What do I mean by cure? Well, with sickle cell anemia, you need blood transfusions to, uh, on a pretty regular basis to end the pain that's caused by, uh, by sickle cell anemia. And eventually you pass away from, from a really devastating disease. Um, these, these people who have had this treatment so far, they haven't needed a single blood transfusion since the time they've gotten the treatment, not one. Which means they're cured. Which means they are. That's a cure. Um, and uh, you know, we we have to follow them. We got to make sure that uh, that this is a lasting effect. But it sure seems like a cure. Well, sickle cell anemia is not the only disease that can be treated by this. Thalassemia, lots of blood diseases, and then there are ways of actually using this technology for cancer as well. And so um, I'm incredibly excited by these gene editing technologies. You'll hear the term CRISPR uh, thrown around. Uh, it's a it's an amazing technology. The two female scientists who just won the Nobel Prize for it uh, last year, uh, uh, one American and one uh, one Swiss, uh, truly remarkable individuals. Again, that that human story is there as well. Uh, so in health, that's what I'm excited about. Well, and I, you know, I I have a question on a totally different topic for you, but I have to say what I what I like about that story is you're forward looking. Is it once again serves as a reminder of the value of basic science. I mean, you're talking about the foundational research that was looking into E. coli. People have heard about, you know, er every few years you get this warning, like, don't eat the, don't eat the hamburger meat. There's E. coli in it. Right. right. And so that's, that's where most people have heard of this particular bacterium. Well, and, and someone was looking 30 years ago at how E. coli metabolize phosphates. I can't think of a more boring abstract totally out there. And I could see on the floor of the Senate, some senators saying, why in the heck are we funding this? Well, it turns out that from that basic science, you, you follow the chain of science forward. And now we're curing people of, of, of a crippling and fatal disease. It's absolutely stunning and mind boggling. But now, now that I've, I've, I've hit you with a dose of inspiration, um, here's a bummer for you, uh, Dr. Parikh. Yeah. It seems to me that your job has gotten much harder along with everyone's job who, who works in some way associated with politics or government over the last couple of decades, as everything in our society has gotten more politicized, more infected by tribal politics. Now, I'm just thinking, for example, of, of the debate over global warming. It shouldn't be a debate, but it is. But you tell me, has your job to communicate about science, about the value of things like basic research into E. coli phosphate metabolism, has your job gotten harder? It has, Matt. And the, you know, the reason why is that, uh, well, there's many reasons why, but, but one of the most fundamental is that we've all come to expect that everybody communicating with us has an agenda uh, that, is, uh, that is in some way tied to politics or ideology. Um, and that, that assumption makes it the, where you don't start from a neutral place. You don't start listening to me from a neutral place. You start listening to me from a place of, ah, yes. You know, his agenda is to spend more money on science because he gets paid by the science, by, by that money, right? Or uh, he, he wants to do that because he believes that, uh, that, that science is the way forward and not religion. And these, these assumptions, these assumptions, which, you know, they, they, affect, they infect every part of our lives, but in, in communicating science to the general public and also to the Congress, um, what it means is that you've got to spend the first part of every discussion you're having um, actually not focused on the science, but focused on shared values. 
focused on shared understanding that you are, uh, that you have the same basic uh, structure of your belief system as the person you're talking to. Um, and what I mean that is, what I mean by that is, you know, we care about, we care about our, our children and our grandchildren's lives. We care about, um, uh, we, we care about morality and the ethics of what we're doing. Uh, and that's, that, that means it takes that time to do that. And you can't do that in one meeting, right? So what it means is that you can't just go in and parachute in and have a conversation about science and, and, uh, and the wonders of science. You've got to be able to build a long-term relationship. Uh, and that is harder. It takes work. It takes a lot of work. And you don't, and there's some, there's some places where I can't get over the hump. I can't get over the hump anymore. And that didn't used to be uh, as, uh, uh, as, as much of a problem. So yeah, Matt, we are facing a time in which uh, these, these assumptions that we have about it and the tribes that we're, that we're sorting ourselves into has infected every part uh, of our communication, including in science. You know, I, I can't help but think about the sort of the four years we were, we've been through from 2016 to 2020 with leadership that thumbed its nose at science. And basically, either through um, not caring or uh, sheer ignorance or mendacity, um, uh, deprecated science um, and 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 turned to populism or 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 something else. And what it's meant for for us, not just politically, but. Um, uh, in terms of, of, of what we had to do to overcome that, um, using science when it came to the pandemic. What's remarkable to me is that even after the four years of polemics and an, kind of an anti-science campaign, rhetorical campaign, how quickly when we had an administration which said, hey, we're going to follow the scientists. And all of a sudden, Tony Fauci, instead of being an odd man out at the back, at the back, at the back of the room, um, was given uh, his proper place. And I use Tony Fauci as kind of a, as the, as the stand-in for scientists and science. Uh, we've begun, at least in the United States, to get a handle um, we've begun to get a handle on the pandemic and start asking questions from the scientific standpoint. We, uh, Matt and I have been doing, uh, uh, we've done a couple of shows um, exploring the origins of the pandemic and the really the political atmosphere around the question about the origins of the pandemic. And it's it's a scientific question that we need to know uh, because uh, it's going to help us prevent these kinds of uh, pandemics in the future. It's become political, but it's science. And we and I and I appreciate how difficult your role and other scientists roles have become trying to to navigate the political winds and help educate people about the importance of science. Dr. Parikh, um, the Senate just passed the Endless Frontier Act, which makes uh, some investment in science and technology in very specific areas. Um, is it encouraging to you? Does it do the trick of what we need in terms of support for science? Or is this more about applied research and we still need a lot more on the basic research side? And if we do, how are we going to sell it to the American people? Yeah, uh, it's uh, Paul. It's I, I'm I'm incredibly excited about the passage of 
what's what was the endless frontier the, the the bill formerly known as the endless frontier act it's got a new name now um i'm i'm excited about it for uh, several reasons one is um the the really incredible bipartisan support you know for a bill that actually went through the the machinations of being on the senate floor for a week you know that's that's rare these days and for a, a bill that did that to, to garner 68 votes in the senate um you know that 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 feels good. That feels good for for science, and the reason why is because it shows the level of enthusiasm um, that uh, is bipartisan, uh, and 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 it is a support for science has been bipartisan throughout the last seventy five years. Um, so that part is incredibly exciting. Um, the there are a, there's a lot of things in this bill now. It started off as a as sort of a uh, an addition to the National Science Foundation uh, of a new directorate that was for more of for applied sciences, uh, but that also raised the funding levels for uh, for the basic sciences as well. It's now, um, it's grown a lot because it is a popular bill. And, and as, Paul, as you know very well, when you got a popular bill, it's about to make it through the through the legislative process. It turns into a bit of a Christmas tree. Uh, so this has turned into a bit of a Christmas tree. It's carrying uh, many ornaments, including a reauthorization of NASA um, uh, is, has been added to this bill. So there's a, there's a lot there to digest. And I'm, I'm still in the midst of digesting it. Um, but the the core elements, the core elements, the the addition of a new directorate at the National Science Foundation um, uh, is an important element that I think actually deserves a, a deserves support. Uh, we you know we we do talk about sometimes the fact that it takes a long time for these basic research elements to make their way into uh, into treatments or into products or into consumer products. Um, can we help that along a bit? Can we help that along a bit because um, the, the model that's been around for 75 years, like I said, our, our competitors have, have seen it and they're, they're copying it. So what are we doing next? And that applied directorate could, could, uh, could be incredibly valuable. We want to make sure that it stays in balance with the basic research that's happening at the National Science Foundation. We need to see that grow as well um, to give you some sense of scale. So NIH, we talked about the NIH. It's a $41 billion agency, right? $41 billion with a B. Um, the National Science Foundation is a seven-ish seven billion dollar agency, um, much, much smaller, yet it's all the sciences outside of biomedical research. And what, what we found is that, um, uh, is that the work that goes on there in the physical sciences and in mathematics and in, in astronomy, that a lot of that work ends up uh, in consumer products, but it also ends up helping health as well. Uh, some of the optics that have been developed for our wonderful telescopes and the cameras and the CCDs that have been developed for that, turns out we use all that in biomedical research as well to save lives. Um, and so there's real value in growing that basic component of the National Science Foundation as well. The bill does that, the core of the bill does that. Um, there have been some elements that have been added related to um, uh, immigration and related to collaboration internationally. Uh, and it, it's, it's there for good reason. It's there for good reason. Like we want to make sure we're, protect, we're protecting our, our ideas, our intellectual capital, uh, all very important. We want to do it in a wise way. We want to do it in a wise way because international collaboration is critical to all of this. It's critical to all of this. Um, but we want to make sure that we stay at crossroads for science because um, if we're going to tackle climate change, if we're going to create batteries that work for long periods of time, if we're going to cure cancer and sickle cell uh, anemia, uh, we're going to need people who are uh, descendants of the pilgrims, of Native Americans, of the founding mothers and fathers, descendants of enslaved people, 
descendants of Ellis Island arrivals. Uh, and we're gonna need international collaborators from around the world, because these are tough problems. These are tough problems. Um, and so all the money in the world doesn't work if you don't have human capital. So we gotta make sure that, we, that those elements of the bill that have been added, we wanna make sure that they're clear, that they, um, that they make sure that the scientific community is, on, uh, is, is partnering with the intelligence community uh, on making these decisions, because um, as much as I love my colleagues in the intellectual, uh, uh, in the uh, intelligence community, uh, they they know their stuff and the scientists know their stuff. And we've got to be talking and collaborating because what can seem like a horrific uh, failure of, uh, of and loss of intelligence in the scientific community can actually be the sharing of biomedical research that leads to uh, that that next consumer product or that next cure. So we've got to make sure that we're uh, we're doing that wisely. And we're in the scientific community, we're following it very carefully. Uh, and we're going to be offering suggestions for, uh, for, for, you know, making those things just right, threading the needle exactly right uh, as we go into conference with the House. Uh, but the fact that the, the Congress is thinking about translating basic research into, into consumer products and investing in science is incredibly exciting. I, I know I'm talking a lot, but I want to add one more point to this, which is that did the the bipartisan support is also cross chamber. So in the house, the house Republicans put out a report saying they want to double basic research in 10 years. The house Republicans put out uh, a, a report saying that the, um, uh, you know, these bills that are uh, flowing through the house and Senate, they're talking about these numbers and these dollars. So it's an exciting time in the sciences. Now I do hope it all translates into appropriations. These are authorization bills, which is as Paul, as you know, authorization bills are a, a promissory note. They're not real money. Well, you yeah. know, can I connect a dot for you there? My first job, this was right before you started your run on Senate appropriations. My first job on Capitol Hill, I was a fellow during grad school on the House Democratic staff for appropriations. That's for our listeners. Those are the folks in Congress who give out the money, like Dr. Parikh was just saying. That's where it all happens. That's that's right. That's where the bread gets buttered. That's people. where it all happens. That's where it happens. You can authorize anything, but until you get the money from a probes, yeah, you might as well cut the just check. Think, that's right. We need money. And you know, my very first job there was to write a report on justifying as basically making the economic argument for investing in basic research because the Democrats wanted to make it. It is so exciting for me to hear from you, and I hadn't seen this before, that House Republicans are making that argument. All right, yeah. Yeah. just like I did before, I'm gonna go from hope to total bum out. Yeah. You know, I wanna go back to start the bum out to something Paul was saying. Yeah. Uh, I don't usually do that. But Paul was saying at the top of the show, we've entered a period where misinformation, miscommunication about science is rampant and it expresses itself most in conspiracy theories. And it's it's led to real consequences, real world consequences in terms of how people feel about masks, how people feel about vaccines, how people feel about the kinds of information that they're getting from experts. There was a whole book by Tom Nichols, The Death of Expertise, people's fundamental belief in scientists, in scientific experts has eroded in recent years. And we just, the guest last week who preceded you is Donald McNeil. He was the lead COVID reporter for the New York Times during most of the pandemic. And he took us inside the editorial process. He's talking to scientists. He's, his editors are looking over him. They're trying to figure out the origins of COVID, the so-called lab leak 
theory. And he took us through how he was working with scientists, working with the best available scientific information. At the time, there was a pretty broad consensus that the weight of evidence said, you know, this probably came from an animal. It probably didn't come from a lab. We feel reasonably confident. And then new information emerged and the understanding changed. Well, that to me sounds like science, but to a lot of the public, that sounds like someone lied, someone covered up, and I'm not going to trust what I'm hearing from experts next time. And you see this in health and you see it in global warming and you see it broadly across expertise. So you are an expert in communicating about science. This is a huge, huge problem. I don't expect you to be able to solve it on your own, but what do you do and what do you advise to people who care about the public having some faith in experts when science deals with uncertainty and evolving understanding of, of the facts and politics and communications deals with certainty, conviction, assertion, and no room for nuance. Yeah, Matt, is, is, I wish I had uh, a simple answer uh, uh, for the question that you're asking. Uh, the, the first thing is uh, we as scientists have to be better about communicating the scientific method. How this actually works, right? We don't know this stuff immediately. We're learning. We're learning. And, and the, the closest I could come to this is that, um, uh, is that you know, I, the metaphor I use is, is children who are learning are all natural scientists, right? And they're testing and they're probing and they're, they're making mistakes. And that in a certain sense, we scientists are that. We are just the kids that never grew up, except we make decisions that are, um, and we make analyses that are really important. And so we've got to be able to communicate and say where our uncertainties are. The problem is, is that a lot of times policymakers nor the public want to hear about the uncertainties. Um, and, and that's a challenge for all of us. And we, the reason why scientists have a hard time communicating with the public is that we have, um, as we've become more um, uh, sophisticated in our analyses, if you want to talk about them very uh, precisely, you got to use jargon because it becomes very important what you mean. Uh, and that jargon separates you from the rest of society. Um, and so I've become a proponent of making sure that we are situationally using jargon and precision. So when I'm trying to make a point that is an important point that has some uncertainty, but that uncertainty is very small. Let's talk about climate change is a perfect example of this. I can muddy the waters with the uncertainties that we have in different models, uh, in different data that we've collected. And I can, I can paint you a pretty good case for why we don't know anything. I could do that. Now, the, the, the truth is that, yes, we have lots of uncertainties, but they all point in the same direction. They all point in the same direction, almost all of them. Uh, and so when you put them all together, the, the circumstantial data and then the fact-driven data is really overwhelming. Um, and so in that case, the jargon, the precision is hurting our communication of that, uh, of that information. And so we've got to be able to, to pull back on the precision there and increase on the accuracy. As scientists, we're taught to be both accurate and precise. And so situationally doing that and then making sure the precision is available for those who are interested and want to get there. Um, that's hard to do whenever you're communicating about a pandemic and you've got 30 seconds on television uh, to communicate. Um, and that means that we have to be better at actually educating our population about science at the beginning, through the schools, through K-12 education. Um, and you know, this, is not, this is not what the AAAS does, but there are wonderful organizations out there that are working on curriculum development for K-12 uh, in the sciences that make it to where we have an informed citizenry. Because if we can't, if we can't have a, 
uh, public that understands these methods and understands how we actually uh, drive towards answers on the biggest challenges facing us, uh, they will eventually lose enough faith to stop supporting us. Or, you know, some of this, you, you see this amazing support for science. The, the, the flip side of that is they're supporting science that they want to believe in, right? That aligns with their ideology. And that's a little scary, right? That's more than a little scary. It's a lot scary um, because it makes you say, yes, I want to support science, but I don't believe Tony Fauci, right? Give me a scientist up there that actually that talks about masks the way that I want to talk about masks. Uh, and that that will kill us as a nation. Because look, you know, there was a time in the Soviet Union when they wanted to believe that they knew how to grow wheat a certain way that was the right way. And so they decided the Soviet way was better than the stuff that was in the journals that was coming out of the West. And they managed to create a self-inflicted famine on themselves. Um, and you know, that's the kind of thing that, that's what happens when you start choosing your science by ideology. Uh, and so we've got to make sure we're protecting against that, that people know these stories. Uh, and that's why folks have to be out communicating and, and speaking in places that, that aren't the norm. You know, building, uh, building trust with folks that, um, uh, that maybe isn't a place where scientists used to tread. Uh, but we can't be insular as scientists anymore. Uh, and fortunately, these under 30 scientists, they're not like my generation or the generations older than me. They want to be involved in the public. They want to be involved at their local level, at the state level. Um, and so we are trying to give them tools to say, here's how you communicate to your PTA, to your county commission, to your school board, to your state legislators, because we need 100,000 of them. We don't need one of me. I can't fly into Missouri and affect the Missouri State House at all. Nobody cares what Sudet Parikh thinks. But if there's a postdoc or a graduate student at Mizzou uh, who can go to Jefferson City and go make a case about something, they're going to believe that kid. They're going to believe that kid more than they're going to believe me. So we have 100,000 of them out there communicating and building bridges in their communities. Uh, that's the only way that I think in the end we can, we can solve these problems because it's not going to happen from, uh, from on high. It's going to happen person to person. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about my own, my own training. I was trained as an attorney. And uh, one of the most uh, difficult parts of that education was learning an entirely new vocabulary learning a new conceptual framework for approaching issues or problems and learning a new vocabulary. And then when I was a trial lawyer in front of jurors, I'd have to take all the language I'd learned, all the vocabulary I'd learned, and try to figure out how to put it into plain English so that people on the jury would understand instead of you know, talking about the rule against perpetuities or 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 adverse possession, uh, words that mean absolutely nothing to ninety nine point nine nine percent of the population, you'd have to be able to translate it. And and for scientists, the the it's an even uh, more complicated, uh, more more complicated uh, problem. I mean, when I've read scientific journals and scratched my head and your or medical texts or medical reports, even trying to figure it all out. There are, there are language barriers. And then there are uh, the other barriers. As you say, we're now living in a digital world. We're analog beings trapped in a digital universe. We haven't evolved to um, really understand all the consequences of the tools we're using, but it makes, it makes all kinds of information and misinformation and ideology available to everybody. And sometimes the challenge of being ruled by opinion instead of fact, and then figuring out the facts that are the real facts is, is a, 
is a tremendous challenge. It, 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 it leads me to our next question, which is, are we educating the next generation of scientists in this country or are we falling way behind in our scientific education to other to other countries that are putting more emphasis on it? I mean, you're I'm the I'm the grandson of immigrants from Eastern Eastern Europe. Uh, you're the son of an immigrant, as you told us earlier uh, in the show, who was recruited to come here, a geologist, an Indian geologist working in France, recruited to come to the United States. And here you are, Dr. Parikh, with, a, with an extraordinary career. So talk to us about the educational system. And I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your own education and what led you to your fascination with science and the pursuit of your career. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you're talking about places where I am um, not as optimistic. Um, I am pessimistic right now about the state of our educational system related to the sciences. Uh, we do a very poor job in this country of getting our children ready to be the human capital that's gonna be required uh, to do the research coming up. You know, I, I, I've, uh, I've been asked about, uh, you know, intelligent design versus evolution. And you know, I I come from a, a faith community that that is willing to to engage in this conversation, and and what I tell folks is, look, intelligent design. I, I cannot tell you uh, what started everything here on Earth. I can't I, as a scientist. I can't tell you that yet. Uh, but what, as a scientist, I want to be able to predict things. I want to be able to design, you know, to to make predictions about the future and then affect that future. And so, if I want to cure Alzheimer's, like I've, I've said before. Um, teaching children about intelligent design in the schools is never going to lead to the cure for Alzheimer's because there's nothing in what's taught looking backwards. that tells you about what's happening going forwards. Mm -hmm. If I teach you about evolution and about the fact that molecules evolve, that, um, uh, that this is happening at the molecular level and that that is actually the basis of much of the, 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 the science and the medicine that we're doing these days, uh, that leads to cures for Alzheimer's. Uh, it suddenly becomes important that yes, when I teach intelligence in, in, in our faith communities, we can do that. But at the schools, we've got to be able to teach children the things they're going to need to compete in this global society and to solve those existential challenges. Um, and so we've got to be investing in curriculum development for K-12. I think it's, it's incredibly important because we are relying right now, we're relying too much right now on too small a slice of our population, right? They're living on the East and West Coast and they're growing up in university towns. Um, and we're relying on too small of a slice of our population when people like Jim Allison, Jim Allison's a Nobel Prize winner uh, from, uh, from Texas, who grew up in a place that, well, you know, they probably didn't teach too much evolution there. He's the guy who's the reason why we have immunotherapies. Uh, just an extraordinary person. We've got to make sure that we're growing people like that. So uh, I am a little bit pessimistic there. I'll tell you that my own uh, uh, interest in science comes from the fact that I want to be able to influence the future. I want to be able to influence the future. And at first I was going to be a journalist. I thought that would do it, but I'm not, it turns out I can't write very well, um, but uh, at least not as a journalist. Uh, and so science is a place where you can affect the future. You can affect the future by what you discover and what you learn. Uh, and I think that that is incredibly compelling to kids. And we've got to make sure that they feel, uh, they feel drawn to that and that we're drawing people again from all over the world to do that here in the United States. Well, 
This is Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We've been talking with Dr. Sudha Parikh, a noted scientist about science in the United States. There's good news. There's bad news. Um, but now at least we have an administration that uh, believes in science, uh, that is following science, and we're all benefiting from that uh, that approach. So, Dr. Parikh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been it's been a lot, just a real blast. This is Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL. Look up our podcasts at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Become a subscriber. Become a fan. You can visit our website, find our archived shows. We'll be back next week with another edition of Beyond Politics.